0: So now we will, we are going into the, the session of the question and answers. First, I would like you to reflect on the experience we just had and ask any question that comes to your mind, any observation or question. So would you like to say something or are you all blissed out? <laughs> Please come here. Tell us your name and then ask. Uh, my, <coughs> name is, uh, my name is my name is from New York uh, about this meditation that we just did, uh, I was wondering what might be the difference in uh, keeping your eyes shut versus keeping them open because ultimately we are taking in everything and we are just focusing on the awareness that's aware of everything. Yes, so I would think it would be the same whether your eyes are open
1: or shut. so is there any advantage? Otherwise, thank
0: you. to keep your eyes open and shut. In principle, no difference in Advaitic meditation. But remember what we just did, relaxation, listen, then sink into that awareness. We did that because usually we dwell in our minds and bodies. When your eyes are open, the mind is very active it's very difficult to step back into the ever-present reality. So that's why, just as an entry, just as a gateway, it helps to keep the eyes shut. It helps to relax. When you are listening, it's the mind which is active. But we are using the listening as a stepping stone back into the background consciousness. That consciousness is always present. Once you get the habit of noticing it and centering yourself there, the ideal would be that it is always there. When the eyes are open, when the eyes are closed. When you are trying to meditate, when you are not meditating, when you are walking in the, uh, in the, uh, you know, in the park outside, wherever you are, whatever you are doing, that awareness is there all the time to know that. You see, we are using the mind to center ourselves in that awareness. Even that centering is a kind of practice, right? That centering also is something that you need not do later on. Once you are aware of it, once you know what you were talking about, then you know it's always available. Anybody else would like to say something? Yes, please come. No, you have to come here. Please sit there, tell us your name.
1: There.
0: And tell us your name. Hello, my name it. is Momita. My question is a very dumb question. Shamiji, I have problems because when I close the close my eyes and if I open my eyes too different mm-hmm. opening my eyes I never can see the light I don't know awareness or whatever all right but we'll, we'll when you deeply I'll close write. your stop, eyes stop I'll stop leave. right you there stop right the stop right there what is that stop right there note what she said it's an important point when I open my eyes and when I close my eyes there's a big difference Right? Here is where we must distinguish the two approaches to meditation. One approach will tell you, as she just said, when I close my eyes, I see the light. When I open my eyes, I just cannot. Right? That is the traditional approach to meditation. To close the eyes and focus. If you open the eyes, you cannot focus. Are you with me so far? Now, follow this carefully. The statement she made was, I see a great difference when I close my eyes and open my eyes. What is it that notices the difference? What is it, she said, mind? What is it that just said mind? There is something which notices the difference. Open my eyes, scattered mind, active mind. Impossible to meditate close my eyes, it is possible with some effort to meditate. The one which saw this difference, that one, is it scattered? Is it steady? Always? The one which notices the difference between meditative mind and scattered mind, closed eyes and open eyes, that one, Is it scattered or meditative? Meditative. 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 Or neither? (laughs) Uh, This Advaitic meditation is pointing to that. In Advaitic meditation also, preliminary, it is useful to close the mind as we just did and experience it inwards, but that is not the point. The It is useful to see through. All right, can we have a question from the internet audience? Thank you. Um,
1: Swamiji, we have uh, five connected questions stemming from your talk. Five, The five questions. Yes. <laughs> I'm trying to combine. Yes. (laughs) On the Mandukya Upanishad. Uh, The first is from Deepa who asks, Does pure consciousness have intention or is it my own realization of pure consciousness that creates circumstances for my earthly form of pure consciousness?
0: Pure consciousness, consciousness in itself does not have any intention. Intention comes when there is the overlay of the mind. But remember, interestingly, the mind cannot function without the awareness. Pure consciousness, awareness, atman, emptiness, clear light of the void, all synonymous. The witness consciousness, all synonymous. It does not have an intention. There is an interesting technical term called intentionality in philosophy. It's used in the philosophy of phenomenology which was uh, developed by Husserl Edmund Husserl early uh, in the 20th century Basically what he pointed out was all our thoughts are about something Right now Even your thoughts about meditation, they are about what? Meditation So all our thoughts are about something This being about something is called intentionality It's a useful concept It can, we can use it, not in the way Husserl intended but to distinguish intentionality from the pure consciousness. Consciousness itself, by the way, pure consciousness is not that something, uh, it is, uh, was impure, now it has been purified, scrubbed, clean, no. Consciousness in itself is always pure. Pure in the sense that it transcends the mind, it is not the mind. Not the changing mind, in that sense pure. Pure consciousness, or this awareness, the light of awareness, has no intentionality. It is non-intentional awareness. That itself gets coined into intentionality when the mind starts working. When the mind works, senses work, body works, then you have intentionality. Yes. Next question.
1: Uh, There are two questions on the waking and dreaming state. The first one is from Girish, who says, "Um, if I got this right, you said that from a dream state, the world of the known sort of pops into existence, but does not really exist outside that state. Thus, it would mean I create my own world, which includes you and all other beings and things that I perceive. If so, why can't I see the world from your perspective, Where you are the dweller in my waking dream, I should be able to see the self creation from various perspectives, not just through one mind and one set of sense organs.
0: Let's take that. All right. If you have followed the question, um, it's a question which comes to everybody. Sometimes, if you think about waking, dreaming, and deep sleep. Now, Let's take the first part of the question. If you listen carefully, you'll see he saw, he said If I understood you correctly, you said, I am creating the world. If our waking is like dreaming, dreaming obviously, I create my dream. So in waking, if if it's like dreaming, then I am creating this world. Let's stop right there. You're mixing up two things, waking and dreaming. You see, in dreaming, in a dream, you are there in your own dream, are you not? You are a person there in the dream world and you do not call it a dream world. For you, that's like waking. You have no clue that you are dreaming usually. And the person who is there in that dream world, which you call a dream world only after waking up. In that world, when you are there, that one, you in your dream is not the creator of the dream. It's just like a person in this world just like you don't feel you are creating this world similarly you in your dream you don't feel that you are creating the world you rather feel I am here and there is a world outside me which I am interacting with with me Mm -hmm. so that person in the dream does not create the dream world it's only from the waker's perspective you realize that all of the dream world and the people and the things and the places and the events including I myself who was there in the dream playing one character all of that was imagined in my mind that's only after waking up. Similarly, here also, Advaita does not say, you the individual person, Girish who is asking the question, or Sarvapriyananda, this person is creating the world. Oh, no, no, no. Only from the pers- perspective of consciousness or awareness is that true. From pure consciousness or awareness or the Atman is that true? is that true. That awareness distinguished from the mind just as the waker's mind creates the dream world here also in the waking world it is the pure consciousness or sachidananda which generates this world including the subject and the object you the subject and the object both are are superimpositions or names and forms appearing on the background of pure consciousness only from the pers- perspective of pure consciousness is the world generated uh, imagined, projected, not from the perspective of the person Girish or the person Sarvapriyananda. Okay. The second part was, why can't I see it from your perspective then? But you see in the dream world also you cannot see it from all perspectives. In your dreams, imagine a particular dream which you had, tried to recall. There were other people and you were also there and you saw those other people only from your perspective, not from their perspective. Although when you wake up, you realize all of them are in your mind. Similarly, when we get enlightened, we realize all beings are appearances in one consciousness. But when you function as a person, people will call you an enlightened first person, but you will still function from your perspective. People ask here, if I am one consciousness in all beings, then why do I not know your mind? And Just as I know this mind, why do I not know all the other minds? Here, follow this carefully. You are mixing up consciousness and the knower. In Sanskrit, the words are very clear. Sakshi and Pramata. Sakshi is the witness consciousness. Pramata is the witness consciousness plus mind. Right now, we are functioning as what? We are, when The moment the word comes functioning you are consciousness plus mind. The moment you bring in mind, the sense organs and the body and everything is brought in, the person comes alive. So when you say, I know my mind, who's saying that? Not pure consciousness. It's the pramata, the knower who is saying that. And that knower is limited, fortunately or unfortunately, to one body and mind. Each body and mind functions in the light of that one pure consciousness, which we all really are. But when we try to think about it, you're already at the level of the mind. Therefore, you will not be able to think through all minds, through all bodies. In fact, um, I had this very touching and very sad episode. uh, episode. I got a a mail from a gentleman uh, several years ago when I was in India. This person, do you remember uh, a Malaysian Airlines aircraft was shot down? One was lost in the ocean and just a few months later, another was shot down by a missile over Ukraine. This gentleman wrote to me saying that The plane was flying from, I think, Netherlands or somewhere, Amsterdam or something, to Malaysia probably. Somewhere in the um, Belgium, Amsterdam, one of those countries, uh, to, to Malaysia. And it got shot down over Ukraine. This gentleman said, he was writing from, I think, Amsterdam or somewhere. He said, my girlfriend was on that plane, and she died, like everybody else. Now, I was listening to your talk, is it possible for me to know the last thoughts in her mind? If I am consciousness, I should be able to just as I know my own thoughts. Should I, can I ever know the thoughts of other people and this person also? And I had to reply, alas, no. When you say no, knower, you're talking as that person. And your girlfriend is another person. The contents of that mind were known to that knower. The contents of this mind are known to this knower. Both are equally lit up by that background consciousness. You see why this question arises again and again is because we are unable as yet to distinguish between mind and consciousness. We think we have understood. Swami, I did the non-dualistic meditation. Now I know that I am awareness. All this is mind. It's the mind talking. If a clarity begins to come between the background consciousness and the mind, you would drop the mind and you will not ask mind-like questions. Can Can I know the thoughts in another person's mind just as I know the thoughts in this person's mind? Who is asking this question? Awareness or the mind? The mind, not awareness. You still have not taken the perspective of awareness. All right.
1: So uh, building on that, uh, Shatik has a question about karma in dreams. Often dreams come and go and are, gen- and are generally not the same, implying that the entity in one dream did not get the results of their karma in another dream. Is an individual's karma in my dream the result of my action, or is it something else? If it is the result of my action, then by the same logic, why don't these karmas get assigned to me in the waking state as there is no real distinction between dream and waking state it should be assigned to the dreamer of the waking state or or perhaps some other entity
0: my first uh, response to that is don't get entangled in all of this (laughs) right you'll get into a hopeless mental entanglement (laughs) i'll give you the answer to that just for your satisfaction but The question is uh, about karma in the dream versus karma in the waking. First thing, I'll give you a key to understanding Advaita Vedanta. Advaita talks about different levels of reality. Often our confusions arise because we mix up levels of reality. Our questions arise because we mix up levels of reality. What are levels of reality? You see, uh, by mistake, you see a rope as a snake. The rope is at one level of reality. And the snake which you see is at another, a lower level of reality. So Advaita speaks of, say for example, three levels of reality. The absolute. In Sanskrit, Paramarthika. The only thing that is the absolute is Brahman. Or Atman. Or the awareness. Or pure consciousness. All one and the same thing. That's the absolute. The second level of reality which Vedanta speaks about is the transactional or the empirical or the relative. vyavaharika What is vyavaharika Right here, right now. The rope is part of Vyavaharika reality. Right now we are sitting here and talking and about question and answers and we are thinking all, the, all of this is vyavaharika The errors that we have in the Vyavaharika reality, like the making, mistaking the rope for a snake. That's a third level of reality, an even lower level of reality, which is called Pratibhasika, which means illusory or appearance. So, your waking is Vyavaharika, your dreaming is Pratibhasika. The rope belongs to your waking reality, Vyavaharika, relative reality. And the snake belongs to the level of error or dream or illusion, which is Pratibhasika. The rope cannot be a snake. Really the rope cannot be a snake. The rope is really a a rope and in error it's a snake. Right? So now what happens in dream stays at the level of dream. It's like saying like saying why doesn't the karma of the dream continue in the waking state? It's like saying why doesn't the poison of the snake poison the rope? The rope appeared as a snake. It's a very poisonous snake. So is the rope poisonous or not? No it is not. It is not. Because the rope is not a snake at all. When? In our transactional relative reality. In the error it's a snake. In our relative reality it's a rope. It has nothing whatsoever to do with a snake. And in the absolute standpoint what is it? It's none other than Brahman. It's not even a rope. It is the absolute. Now what happens at one level of reality cannot influence what happens at a higher level of reality. Yeah. At a deeper or more fundamental level of reality. So the poison of a snake in the, in the error does not poison the rope in reality. Hmm. Shankaracharya puts it very beautifully in one of his commentaries. The water of a mirage, yeah. all the an entire lake and oasis You see in a mirage, cannot wet even a grain of the desert sand. All that water is not enough to wet even one grain of the desert sand. In the same way, all your miseries, sufferings and sin and guilt has not the slightest effect on the witness consciousness. They are dreams to it. At the level of the witness consciousness, you are perfect right now. You are immortal. You are beyond sin, beyond damage, beyond death. In the Bhagavad Gita, the first teaching that Krishna gives Arjuna is, your real self, O Prince, is immortal. It is never born, will never die. Swords cannot cut it, the water cannot dry it, the uh, water cannot uh, drown it, the fire cannot uh, burn it. Because water, fire, swords, all of that is what? Vyavaharika reality, relative reality. The real self is what? Paramarthika, absolute reality. Absolute reality, relative reality? Delusional, delusional, error, dream, illusion, all of that. Prativasika literally means appearance. Vyavaharika means transactional. Paramarthika means absolute. So I did some karma in the dream. It's a dream. It's pratibhasika. You didn't do it. With respect to your. vyavaharika I insulted this guy in my dream. Now I'm afraid to meet him. Will he be mad at me? No. He has no recollection of you insulting him. Because you didn't. It was entirely in your mind. You don't have to go and apologize to him. It has no effect at all on that person. Because that person now belongs to your relative reality. But all of what happens in this relative reality has no effect on Brahman, the pure consciousness which is present right here which you are all the time which is that background awareness it's very close to us, it's the closest of the close Shankaracharya says in in the Isha Upanishad it says it's farther than the furthest and nearer than the nearest How can it be nearer than the nearest and farther than the furthest? The commentator Shankaracharya writes. It's nearer than the nearest. Because it is your own self. It is you yourself. To whom? To the one who knows. And it is further than the furthest. To the one who is in ignorance. The difference is not in distance. It's in knowledge. In knowing and not knowing. The difference is not in time. That God is not here. God is after death in heaven. Now and then. No, no, no. The difference is knowing and not knowing. So karma belongs to which plane? Transaction. Transactional, correct. The Vyavaharika, transactional, empirical, relative, Vyavaharika plane. Karma is there. You'll be interested to know, karma is one of the fundamental planks, supports of Hinduism, Buddhism, all the Indian philosophies. They all accept the theory of karma without reservation. And Shankaracharya talks about karma and in one place in the Brahma Sutra, more than one place, but one place I remember clearly, cuts it down in no uncertain terms. So you will see, is karma real or not? Question, which plane are you asking from? The karma of the dream is real as far as the dream goes, is unreal as far as your waking goes. The worst of karma that you have done and the best of karma that you have done in your dream has no effect on your waking state. And the karma that you do here has absolutely no effect on Brahman, on the, on the absolute, on, on, on Satchidananda. Because that karma belongs to the transactional level. Now don't ask, what about karma at the absolute level? At the absolute level there is no karma. There is no karma. Vivekananda put it directly, good, good, bad, bad, and none escape the law. What is this law of karma? But whosoever wears a form must wear the chain too. What is the chain? The form. Form means this body. It is produced by our karma, prarabdha karma. So here we are subject to that chain. Our lives will proceed on a narrow track. It will proceed on this narrow track. And what will happen on this path is because of our past karma. Of course we have free will to respond to it as we, as we, and that will, that will generate further karma. Which track you will get switched to next. But, and, and extending that metaphor, uh, God is the one who, who does the shunting. I don't know, in Indian railways, do the, 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 there's a guy who does the shunting, who shunts your train from this track to that track, change, changes the track. But, from the absolute point of view, there is no karma. Absolutely no karma.
1: Alright. Oh
0: I am sorry. Sorry to interrupt you. Let me complete the quotation from Vivekananda. Good, good, bad, bad and none escape the law but whosoever wears a form must wear wear the chain too. Very good. Up to that conventional religion karma. But where does Vedanta come in? Where does Advaita come in? Next line. He says but far beyond, far beyond name and form is the Atman ever free. That thou art, Sannyasi. Bold. Say Om Tat Sat Om. Right now we know what he means. If you got even a bit of that meditation of the background awareness and the sounds and all the experiences of your life floating by. The experiences of your life, the people and the things and the thoughts and what you say, what you do, whatever is happening in your awareness All those things are past karma, generating all of that. The awareness, the unchanging light which you are, that is the Atman, that's ever free, completely untouched by karma, as the bright blue sky is untouched by clouds floating past. That thou art. Right now you will say, no, no, but this problem, that problem, who is saying this problem, that problem? Mind. Subject to karma or not? Very much so. Forget the mind. Let's go on.
1: And the last two questions are on the deep deep sleep state. Uh, This is from Annika in Germany. Uh, The experience in deep sleep is the experience of the absence of experience because the mind is not active. When I wake, I know I slept peacefully. To come to this conclusion, I use my mind because there are no stored memories about a dream available for me to process. I can only know my inactive mind through my active mind. To me, this is a paradox. Could it be I am dreaming all the time while sleeping, but I only remember a dream I had just before waking up? I'm sure you can help me clarify this paradox.
0: All right that's a good question about the deep sleep state in Sanskrit Sushupti. The phrase she used was uh, in deep sleep we have an uh, um, there's an absence of experience. I always preferred the other way around. It's an experience of absence. It's an experience of absence. But still her main question stands. The mind is inactive. How do I recall how do I get up and say that I slept peacefully, I didn't know anything. It's like the, as she says, active mind trying to recall an inactive mind, how did that happen? The question here is, if it is an experience of absence and the mind is inactive, you need the mind to have experiences. So, if the mind is inactive, what experienced and what recorded it? She's asking then, is that, was I dreaming all throughout? Now the answer in uh, Vedanta is this. This question has been raised. The answer is this. Normally when I experience the world, it is consciousness plus mind. And of course plus sense organs, plus the body and the world. That's our normal experience of the waking world. What's our experience of the dream world? It is consciousness plus mind. Sense organs are not working. You cannot contact the external world. It's consciousness and the mind only. In the mind, the mind churning churns out dreams. And the consciousness illumines those dreams. It's in the mind. Now when the mind becomes inactive, it goes into a potential state. It's a resolved state. That is called deep sleep. Consciousness, still there, shining. Now that's another kind of experience. All these experiences were experiences of things, events. In Sanskrit the word is precise. Bhava. Some things were there. Manifestation. Now deep sleep is an experience of the unmanifest. It's an experience of absence. It's like your, your eyes are open now. You are seeing all of this. Close your eyes. You can't see anything. Isn't it a kind of seeing also? Huh? That blankness. That darkness. But aren't you seeing after a fashion? You can open your eyes now. Aren't you seeing after a fashion? Isn't that also a kind of... A... Let me put it this way. When you... Um, when you open your eyes... You are experiencing. With me so far? Mm -hmm. When your eyes are open now, you are experiencing. When you close your eyes, are you experiencing or not? That's also an experience. So that's an experience of Abhava. Abhava literally in Sanskrit means absence. Absence of what? Of all things. That's also experienced. Similarly, in deep sleep, you have an experience of absence. Now the question remains, how is that experience recorded? If it's uh, an experience and we seem to recall that experience, but they can't be memories because the mind is not functioning. (laughs) True. Vedanta says it is recorded in ajnana itself, in ignorance itself. The potential state of the mind is capable of recording changes. The absence of experiences is recorded in that potential state of the mind. But it's a very different kind of recording. When you have some experience, for example, you had this experience and you will go back and recall this question answer session. You saw it, you heard it and you can recall it from memory. So what will be your recollection? I was there, I heard this, I saw this. But when you recall the deep sleep state, you don't recall it that way. You don't recall it as I was there and I slept peacefully. No. If you recall it that way then you, are, you, are, you did not sleep. <laughs> that was not sleep. right? It is just a feeling that I did not know anything. A blankness. A nothingness. That's all. The difference is when the mind is functioning at that moment you have the feeling I am seeing this. I am hearing this. When the mind is resolved you don't have a feeling at that point that I am in deep sleep. Because that I am in deep sleep is a thought which cannot be formulated if you are in deep sleep. Because the mind is not working. So your answer to your question is yes. It is an experience but an experience of a different kind. It's an experience of abhava. An experience of absence. And that is recorded in Agyana, in ignorance.
1: And finally from Manju who wants to know. And I'm in deep sleep, and my mind is shut down. Who is looking after my body? By whose controlled bodily functions, such as heartbeat, breathing, digestion, etc., happen? What is the ground of existence of my body and the world? Where does it exist? How am I able to come back to my body only, and not to any other body?
0: Right. So. Can you see how we are mixing up two levels of experience? Deep sleep, dream on one hand and the physical body, waking body on the other hand. they are different levels of experience. When you are in deep sleep, what does it mean? It means that you are not aware of your physical body. That body is not part of your deep sleep experience. Or the absence of experience there. Or the the experience of absence. Even when you are dreaming. Your physical body is lying on the bed and it's not part of your dream. Right? Only when you are awake is the physical body part of your experience. So that's from your subjective point of view. Objectively what happens? Very simple. The physical body is a living entity. As long as life is there, it is, from Vedanta perspective, it is prana which is maintaining the body. Think about it. Even when you are awake, right now when we are awake, are we maintaining the body? How much of the digestion and the breathing and how much of that is done by us and the beating of the heart and the the hormones in the body and the enzymes and blood circulation, how much of it is done by us? Almost nothing. Even the greatest of Hatha yogis can regain control over some parts of their autonomic functioning. The rest of it is done by Prakriti, nature. Mother nature <coughs> takes care of it. How does Mother nature take care of it? Through prana. In Gita it is there is a verse. Prakriti eva karmani Yapasyati sapasyati. This is one thing which Bhagavan Krishna in the Gita has said thrice. I think in the 4th chapter, 13th chapter and 18th chapter. One point he has made thrice. It is this. Everything in the body, in the world is being done by nature. One who realizes that, realizes that I am not the doer. I am the witness self. This thing Krishna has repeated three times in the Bhagavad Gita. Even in the waking state, you don't maintain the body. The body is maintained by nature, by life itself. It's an automatic process, it's a mechanical process. It's a biological machine. All right. Is there a question from the live audience? Please come. Anthony? Yes. But still repeat your name for the benefit of the internet okay. audience. Okay, this is on or? Yeah? It's okay. on. Yeah, Anthony. Hi. Um, here's a question uh, from the mind, I guess. Yes. Um, let's say somebody um, practices really well, you know, Vedanta and and they realize their true self in this lifetime, their pure consciousness, Brahman. And so then they have the Maha Samadhi, And so now they're in their true self in yes. Brahman. So if from that, is there any interest or is there any choice? Is it possible for them to say, visit the highest heaven,
1: Brahmaloka, which I know I heard exists, or visit again to this appearance world, the physical world again, if they have, do anyone have a choice? All
0: right. Uh, um, let's deal with that question. The question was, that suppose somebody becomes enlightened. I am Brahman. Aham Brahmasmi. realizes I am not the body and mind. I am existence, consciousness, bliss, this immortal self I am. Always have been, am, will always be. Now then, what Anthony said was, well when Mahasamadhi comes, Maha Samadhi comes means the enlightened person gives up the body. Death of the body. Till that point what will happen, that person, the, the others who will see this person, when we see this person from outside we will say this is an enlightened person, if we do recognize him. That person does not see himself as an enlightened person. What does that person see himself as? Brahman. That person sees himself as Brahman, right? Not as an enlightened person. But we see that person as an enlightened person, we will call that person Jivan Mukta, enlightened while living. And there is another term, videha mukta, when that person's body finally drops off, when that person dies, we say is, is liberated, uh, has reached bodiless liberation. Now this li- liberated while living and liberated bodiless liberation, jivan mukti and videha mukti, these are our categories, these are philosophical categories. These do not apply to the enlightened person. That enlightened person sees that I am Brahman. Liberated while living, liberated uh, after the death of the body, immaterial to that person. Point one. Point two. This question of coming and going, the question was can he go to the highest heaven, Brahmaloka? This question of coming and going no longer applies to the liberated person. Even the highest heaven, Brahmaloka, is within Maya. It's a wonderful state, but still within maya, it's still within form. Whenever you have coming and going, do you feel you are in Brahma Loka now? No, I'm in Manhattan. That's as close to Brahmaloka you can get in, on, on planet earth. If you feel you are not in Brahmaloka, Loka, then it's, it's a place you will go to. I saw this big billboard, heaven is a place. It says, heaven is a place. You will get there when you die. Mm -hmm. If there's a place you have to go to, that is short of enlightenment. That's still not enlightenment. If you're enlightened, there is no place you have to go to. No time you have to wait for. Does the person who's enlightened while living wait for bodiless uh, liberation? No, doesn't wait. Staying of the body, dropping of the body, immaterial to that person. So yes, that thing will not apply to what you said. Going to Brahmaloka does not apply to a person who, has, who is already enlightened. In Vedanta they speak about two tracks. One is enlightened here and now. That's what everybody aims at. You are free. But there are those who lead a solid religious life, meditate, moral, virtuous, devotional and have not reached enlightenment at the point of death. They go to higher heavens. And they had the opportunity of going to Brahmaloka and pursuing further uh, spiritual uh, practice till they get enlightenment. But that's, this, that's the scenic road. That, uh, getting enlightenment right here is the, di- uh, is the direct uh, re- result of, uh, uh, of knowledge. So this one, the direct one is attained through knowledge. I am Brahman. That one you are speaking about. Going to heaven. To heaven. Higher heavens. Is attained through. Uh, devotion. Through. They say. Upasana. Worship. So these, that's also ha- that also happens. That you have to take with. Faith. This one is. Directly a result of knowledge. You know it here and now. This is what you have to aim for. Just by chance. We don't get it. This life. Don't worry. Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita. That track is still open to you. That will happen. Yeah. So the the Krishna says there is no loss on this path. On the path to enlightenment there is no loss. One more point and I'm done with that question. This may seem a little shocking. An extension to that question would be while living, there's a body and there's a mind and you know that I have this knowledge, I am Brahman and you can talk about it, you can teach, you can interact and you will have experiences just like we are having after enlightenment does that thing continue? The answer is no. Does that person still feel I am an enlightened person at least? No. Hmm. Consciousness exists by itself. You see this consciousness which we are aware of right now is like a fire which has been lit. It's not you, not the real you. The real you reflected in the mind lights the fire of this. This reflected consciousness. It's called Chidabhasa. It continues as long as the body and mind continue. In fact, it quietens down every day in the night when we sleep. Imagine your deep sleep state. No world, no body, no thought, no personality. But darkness. Ignorance. Drop the darkness there. And you will realize what pure consciousness is. Drop the darkness of deep sleep and you are enlightened. Do it it now, here. Not in deep sleep. You can't do it in deep sleep. Mm -hmm. So, in the state of liberation, that individualized consciousness which will say to itself, I am liberated. No, that's gone forever. It's a fire which was lit. It burns out into embers and it is, it's gone, it's called nirvana. Nirvana means the, the wiping out, the cleaning of the slate. Somebody asked the Buddha, after death, where will you be? Where will you go? And he, Buddha uh, said to the disciple, um, O monk, if a fire is, fire is blown out, will you say it has gone to the east? Said, no, to the west? To the north? To the south? No. Don't think that nothing will be left. The reality which always was, is, will continue to be left. You will remain as that, as infinitude. No longer this limited little flickering fire of individualized awareness. That will go. Yes. Thank you, Anthony.
1: And now we have something completely different, Swamiji. This is from Nilan Nilanjan in Kolkata, who has a question on sentient robots.
0: On sentient robots, okay, that's a right. different one.
1: Recently, I came across the concept of sentient robots. People are saying that we may be able to create sentient robots in the future. Theoretically, I think it is possible. But in that case, how can one harmonize it with the Advaita philosophy? Advaita says anything which is sentient must have consciousness, which is the real self and Brahman. But if a sentient object can be artificially produced, what would be the nature of consciousness of that sentient robot?
0: All right, a good one. But here, you see, there are several issues involved, but I'll point out the core issue first. Creation of a sentient entity is not equal to creation of consciousness. What Advaita would say is, what is a sentient entity? Sentient entity means conscious entity, an entity which is aware. You might think, what are they like? Like you. Like me. Like us. We are sentient beings. Now, what are we in in the Advaitic framework? We are actually pure consciousness, plus mind, and that consciousness reflected in the mind functioning in a nervous system which is embedded in a body with a a body-mind complex. So it's basically consciousness functioning through a body-mind complex which is called a sentient entity. The moment that this mind is lit up by consciousness, then it's called a sentient entity. I'll give you an example. Take a mirror. Look into a mirror. What do you have? You can see your face in the mirror. What do you have? You have three things there. One is your original face. Second is the mirror. And third? Reflected face. Your face reflected in the mirror. You know what is the sentient entity? That mirror with its reflected face. That reflection was not created by the mirror. It's the very nature of the mirror to reflect whatever is in front of it. Since your beautiful face is in front of it, it gets reflected immediately in the mirror. The mirror did not create that face. It just created a reflection. The face existed before the mirror and before the reflection. The face will exist after the mirror and after the reflection. The face exists during the mirror and the reflection completely untouched by the mirror and the reflection. Look, whatever goes on in the mirror has nothing to do with the original face. Exactly like that. Original consciousness, the pure consciousness is reflected in the mind called reflected consciousness. The mind shines with that reflected consciousness. Original consciousness, pure consciousness existed before the mind and the reflected consciousness. It will exist after the mind shuts down in deep sleep or in death. Pure consciousness continues to exist. And during the functioning of the mind, with its reflected consciousness, when the mind functions, pure consciousness continues to exist completely untouched like the original face. It is that mind with its reflected consciousness which is called a sentient entity from an Advaitic perspective. Alright? So we are all sentient entities. The mind and the reflected consciousness. Actually we are the pure consciousness. This is what Advaita wants to say. In ignorance we think we are mind-body with consciousness. In knowledge we realize we are consciousness shining upon a body and mind. Completely untouched by body and mind. Now coming to sentient robots. I think there are more more people in the audience who can answer this better than I can. Uh, We were talking about this yesterday yesterday with a scientist from IBM. uh, And they are working on artificial intelligence. Can you make an artificial system complex enough or subtle enough to reflect consciousness? Advaita says, mind is made of sukshma bhuta, tanmatra which has the ability to reflect Consciousness, channel Consciousness, limit Consciousness and use Consciousness. Pure Consciousness remaining untouched. If you can ever generate something like the mind in your laboratory, what will you be able to do? Reflect Consciousness. Then you would have a sentient entity. But that sentient entity does not mean you have produced Consciousness. No more than the mirror produces the original face. Right? But would that sentient entity be like us in principle? Yes. Why not? No. All right. Question from the, come please come. Swamiji, so, mean, my name is Hemant. Yes. Um, You just mentioned that there are two parts discussed in Advaita. One is the realization right now through knowledge no. yes. and other is as you said a scenic path where you take a kind of a long path with the faith to and hope to... Devotion eat. and upasana worship, yes. Uh, is there any um, advice you can give on which path is the right path based on personality or background? Advaita says both. One is not against, uh, uh, against the other. In order to attain knowledge one must go through the path of devotion and worship as a practical necessity. What about directly? Directly also possible but you start out, try it, you will find your, uh, it's easier if you have a devotional practice. Now supposing knowledge is not generated in this lifetime. You all you still have the entire credit of your devotional practices, a lifetimes balance of that and that will propel you to those higher heavens and then you get You keep getting chances. Hinduism says you have infinite number of chances. Vivekananda said half jokingly, half seriously, take your time. (laughs) Which is not, which is a bit of a relief and a bit of a threat. (laughs) It's much better to get it over and done with now. Um, But the whole process Advaita Vedanta, classical Advaita Vedanta, is not against conventional religion. It is built on a superstructure of conventional religion. It goes beyond conventional religion, transcends conventional religion. But it's not against conventional religion. If you worship God, if you love God, if you chant the name of God, we are singing, chant the name of, of, of the Lord unceasingly. Is it wrong? Of course not. Should I do it? Of course. It can never do any harm. Will it do some good? It will do a lot of good. Will it help me in my path of knowledge? Certainly. So both are to be be combined. In the the best uh, possible way. That's the best option. A funny aside here. I remember about 25 years ago. When I was a novice. There was this another novice with us. uh, A funny chap. He finally left the order, but he remained a monk. He struck, it, st- struck out on his own. He was a bit of a rebel all the time. But a simple guy uh, from a village. So he was reading all these, this path and that path, and the path through the different heavens, this loka, that loka, and so on and so forth. And in Hinduism, we have different lokas. Varuna loka, Indra loka, and all of that, up to Brahma loka, which is the highest heaven. So one day, at night, we would walk with the abbot of the monastery, the head of the monastery. And we would ask our questions. The novices we would get to ask our questions, and we would have to, we'd also have to recite a shloka from the Gita. Uh, so every day we have to memorize a particular shloka from the Gita, and then you have to tell, the, recite it, and then tell the meaning. And, and the Swami, of course, knew the whole Gita by heart. So we had all assigned different chapters. We, I had, had one chapter, another brahmachari had different. So we would, we would uh, chant the try to chant the Gita from memory and at the beginning it was difficult to remember even one verse memorizing one verse per day but just to give, a, give you a feel of this novice whom I'm speaking about he was always a bit of a rebel and, a, and he thought in his own way he said this is easy chanting a Gita verse I'll memorize 10 verses in a day so the first day he did it and then at night he recited 10 verses and the Swami he said take it easy do something that is maintainable And that was right. The next day it was two verses. And the third day it was half a verse. (laughs) Anyway, that apart, one day his question to the Swami was Swami, um, can I uh, um, when I go to after death, when I go to Ramakrishna Loka the abode of Sri Ramakrishna, can I visit Indra Loka and the other other (laughs) heavens? And the Swami said, why would you want to do that? He said, just sort of you know, show off and just, you know, <laughs> sort of subdue them. In Bengali, he said <laughs> to, to, to scold them. That word means scolding, bullying, yeah. chastising them. He was a bit of a strong arm man. So, so every, we all burst out laughing. Yeah, there are different, different there's supposed to be different kinds of heavens. And you go there depending on how much of a good boy or a girl you have been. So you, you go to these different heavens. But all of these heavens, with the exception of Brahmaloka, all of these heavens you have to come back. But Brahmaloka, which is variously called Vaikuntha and Kailasha, or the heaven of the Christians or the Muslims or the Jews, or, or uh, Ramakrishna Loka, which we call, all of that is Brahmaloka. From there you evolve further. You don't have to come back to this world unless one has desires. All right. Thank you. Uh, I'll take up your question next. First a question from the internet audience. <clears throat>
1: um, pranam's from Jonathan in Venice, California. Um, you assert that even for those striving to realize the truth of Advaita, some form of worship of God is necessary. Oh, that's
0: uh, segued nicely into the, this did. question from your question, <laughs> yes.
1: It appears to me that devotional worship of God or Brahman seems irrational from the point of view of Advaita. That is, Brahman is real, the world is an appearance, and each jiva is actually Brahman. So if if we engage in traditional worship of God or Brahman, then we are de facto worshiping ourselves, which is absurd. (laughs) It's like petitioning a king for consideration when the king is, in fact, us. Who is petitioning who? Even from the point of view of Patanjali, if Satyam were non lying or sincerity, then having mutually contradictory practices or beliefs would violate the yoga path as well the yogi path as well. How can one worship God as Heavenly Father, Krishna, etc., if one feels in their heart that the distinction between the worshipper and the worshipped is false in appearance? This sure seems duplicitous and insincere to me.
0: All right. The question resonates? It's a good question. First of all, Jonathan, straight answer. You're right. There's no problem with that. Logically, philosophically, the position you have taken is a position. It's a position. And it is taken by traditional non-dualists in India too. There are those who do that. But, so having said that, now let's go deeper into the question. There are practical grounds and philosophical grounds for the worship of God. That's what I'll, I'll reply to this question. Practical grounds and philosophical grounds too. First of all, philosophically speaking, one thing one must be clear about. The worship of God and Advaita are not on the same level of reality. Do you remember what we discussed about levels of reality? When you say Brahman is real. What level is it? Absolute, relative or illusory. Which one? Brahman is real from the absolute point of view. Right? The world is false. An appearance from the absolute point of view. I am Brahman from the absolute point of view. But when I... If I worship God... I have a puja and a Krishna or a Christ before me. At what level am I doing it? Transactional Transactional relative or Vyavaharika level. The two levels are not the same. So worship of God at the Vyavaharika level does not contradict the absoluteness of Brahman. Brahman is real. The world is an appearance. You are Brahman. Absolutely true. Relatively. That Brahman being identified with a body and mind. Worshipping God. Who is the father. Who is the mother. Who is Krishna. Who is Christ. Perfectly alright. Are you with me so far? Let me put it this way. Even here. A doubt might persist. Jonathan might ask. Granted. If somebody is at the relative point of view, that person can worship God. But Advaita Vedanta speaks about the absolute. So from the absolute point of view, we should not at all speak about worshipping of God. You should only keep on speaking about Brahman being real and the world being an appearance and you are Brahman. Let me say this. From the point of view of absolute also, if you are a committed non-dualist, Jonathan, Do you eat? Do you walk? Do you talk? Do you put on clothes? Do you exercise? Do you talk to people? You do everything else in the world, which are all dualistic practices. You're acting as a body and a mind for all practical purposes. Now, what harm has poor God done to you? that I will do everything dualistic in this world except going to temple or church <laughs> now let me resolve this tangle it's a very simple resolution actually the resolution is this, this is the key I'll give you the key I'll give you the key the key is reality of non-duality It does not contradict experience of duality. This has been mentioned in Panchadashi also. After you realize that the sky, there is no blue color in the sky. It's an appearance. When you look up at the sky, what do you see? Blue sky. sky. Now when you look at the blue sky, do you say the sky is really blue? No, you know it's not blue. It looks that way. The experience of the blue sky and the reality of the colored colorless sky can they exist together? Yes. Two contra- how can something be colorless and blue at the same time? Only because of different levels. Only because it's really colorless and appears to be blue. Right? If the sky was really, really blue, how could the same sky be red sometimes? How could it be black sometimes? How could it even be colorless? No. Really it's colorless and it appears black at night, it appears blue in the morning, it appears red at sunset, appears because of the scattering of light. We know the physics, the optics of it. Exactly in the same way, non-duality is reality or appearance. It's reality, non-duality. Advaita is reality. And dvaita is appearance. You know what is contradictory? Real duality and real non-duality are contradictory. Am I really separate from God? And am I really one with God? Contradictory. Obviously, logically contradictory. But am I really one with God? And I appear to be separate? Fine, there is no problem with it. You know when... Two persons worship God and one says, I am a non-dualist and the other one says, I am a dualist. You know what's the difference? The difference is philosophical. The dualist says, here I am worshipping my Lord. He is my father or she is my mother and I am the child and we are different. And this is where I stop. That is dualism. I love my Lord, I depend on my Lord and I surrender to my Lord. What about being one with your Lord? Impossible, because I am not one with my Lord. That is real dualism. Now, when the so-called non-dualist worships God, He says, here I am. I appear as body and mind, as this individual being, as a human being. And here is the same Brahman appearing as God, Ishwara. Nirguna Brahman, Saguna Brahman. The absolute is Nirguna Brahman, Brahman beyond attributes and God is Saguna Brahman, Brahman with the mask of attributes with a name, Ramakrishna or Krishna or Christ with a form. The name is illusory, Maya the form is also Maya. If you remove the name and form you and and Ramakrishna are one, one Brahman. But as long as you wear that particular mask and God will wear this mask and then your relation is worshipper and worshipped, knowing all the time you are one reality. Hmm? Is it beginning to make sense? A non-dualist can worship, there is no harm in that. Now to be fair to Jonathan, even this kind of worship, is it, is it uh, contraindicated or is it uh, uh, necessary or is it useful? It's not uh, contraindicated, it's not wrong, it's not harmful, it is useful, it is good. But if Jonathan asks, is it necessary? I will have to say, it's not necessary. There may be that rare soul who can go straight and realize, aham brahmasmi, the world is an appearance. Can you bypass God? You're actually not bypassing God, you're going to the reality about God and yourself. Now this is the philosophical reconciliation. Put it in one little sentence. The reality of non-duality is not uh, contradicted by the appearance of duality. A real non-duality can very well uh, coexist and does coexist with the appearance of duality. For example, right now aren't we having a dual experience? An experience of duality? All seems to be different from each other. right? That's our life. If Advaita is true, Brahman, is it there right now? Is it non-dual right now? If it is non-dual right here, right now and it is you. And yet we are experiencing a dualistic world. Then what I said must be true. That an appearance of duality can exist with the reality of non-duality. That is the meaning of the statement Brahma Satyam Jagatmitya. What is mithya? Mithya means false. Brahma satyam means Brahman alone is real. Jagat mithya means world is an appearance. What is the meaning of appearance? That which is not real looks like that. Don't you say that? He appears to be a nice person. Meaning? (laughs) Not a nice person. (laughs) It appears to be dual. Meaning? It's not dual. It's non-dual. Our mistake is, not that we experience duality. We think this is the final reality. That's our mistake. Advaita says this is not the reality. There is an underlying reality of non-duality which appears as a dual universe. Okay, philosophically so far. That is the thing. Uh, um, Let me know when the food is ready. Yes. Okay. So the reality of Non-duality does not contradict the appearance of duality. All this duality and non-duality is making us hungry. <laughs> uh-huh. There was this, uh, uh, this monk who was a strict non-dualist. And a pundit who used to come to him. It's a story I heard in the Himalayas. It's a, r- a true story. It happened this way. The pundit used to come and, and uh, um, fight about that duality alone is true. Dualism is true. Dvaita is real and Advaita is not not correct. And one day the, the Swami said to this pandit, uh, I'll tell you in Hindi and then translate. The Swami said, <laughs> Duality is real, even that cow on yonder field knows that. I am different from the grass, so I have to eat the grass. You call yourself a pandit, tell me something new. What is new? Actually what he means is what is new? It appears to be a dualistic world. The reality is non-dualistic. That is the saving knowledge of Advaita Vedanta. On the other hand, another story of a Panditanda Swami. The same Swami who was a strict non-dualist. Another Pandit came and argued in favor of dualism and the Swami was arguing in favor of non-dualism. And finally the Pandit came, this is a different Pandit, came and said, Swami I agree, you are right. Advaita is correct and dwaita is not. Actually the discussion was about the absolute without qualities, nirakara, formless and the with form. Nirguna and, and Saguna, with quality and without qualities. With, without qualities, without attributes, the absolute, which is Advaita. With qualities. Dualistic approach. dvaita. So finally the Pandit came and said. Swami you are right. Without qualities. Nirguna the absolute. That alone Advaita is right. <laughs> yeah. In Hindi. Nirguna is right. You You said Nirguna is right. So Nirguna is correct. You are right. Now this Swami who had been arguing all these days. In favor of the absolute in favor of the attributeless absolute. He shot back. He said, and the and God with qualities, is that your uncle Sagunter <laughs> It's like saying Bob's your uncle. What he meant was the God with qualities, which I have been arguing against so long, is exactly the same as as the absolute without qualities in realities without qualities that that reality without qualities appears to you in your world of experience in your dualistic dealing as god with qualities they are not two separate things all right practical point i'm not done yet practical point come down to classical advaita look at the one of the best ways of resolving these doubts is look at the persons you would consider enlightened Look at Shankaracharya. Clearly a non-dualist. Advaita Vedanta. How many hymns he has written to Krishna, to Shiva, to the Divine Mother. Beautiful hymns. To the Ganges, Ganga. Ganga's dotram. Beautiful hymns. Devotional hymns. Full of dualistic fervor of worship. Who? None other than Adi Shankaracharya himself. Was he being duplicitous? No. He has no contrary. He sees no contradiction at all. There is no contradiction at all. Even those we considered no, uncompromising non-dualists in this world, in the modern world. Ramana Maharshi, Nisargadatta. Nisargadatta Maharaj, he carried on a dualistic form of bhajan all his life. Bhajan, singing devotional songs. His guru taught him that and he would, he would sing. I think in the evenings he would offer incense and you sing. So is he um, Is it something like a vestigial organ Which he should get rid of Like the appendix No He sees no contradiction Ramana Maharshi The great non-dualist His devotion to Arunachala Shiva Was constant throughout his life And he saw no contradiction at all I am one with Arunachala Shiva But also have devotion and love for Arunachala Shiva I think he wrote one uh, Hymn Which has the Bridal mysticism, madhura bhava towards Arunachala Shiva. This is the height of dualistic worship. And of course you have Ramakrishna. You'll see, but Ramakrishna was dual-. Some people will say, Ramakrishna was dualistic. He was a devotee. Swami Vivekananda said about himself and Ramakrishna. He said, I seem to be a jnani on the outside. Inside I am a devotee. I am a bhakta." And the old man, he mentioned Ramakrishna, he used to call him the old man. The old man was bhakti outside, inside he was all jnana. Completely non-dualistic inside. And yet his whole life was what? Bhakti. No contradiction, he sees no contradiction. Take the example of... um, um, oh, There is a beautiful saying... A, non, a non-dualistic, by a great non-dualistic master I think it was probably um, Naras... Narasingha I think oh, I forget the name of the teacher Bodhat prak Dvaitam Mohaya Prapte Manishaya Bhakti Artham Kalpitam Dvaitam Advaithad adapisundaram. What does it mean? It's a beautiful saying Before enlightenment Duality puts you in delusion it traps you in this little body-mind-self. It's delusion. The w- world we, we live in. After enlightenment, a, a duality imagined for the sake of love, bhakti, is more beautiful than non-duality. Look at the word used. Imagine duality and real non-duality. No contradiction. Why would you imagine a duality? Because for the sake of love, bhakti, you are sugar, but you imagine yourself as separate from sugar to taste sugar, you, then you know your own sweetness. That's bhakti based on Advaita. That bhakti is an expression of non-duality. The worship of God before attainment of, of non-dual illumination is useful for non-dual illumination, not harmful. After attainment of non-dual illumination, you can continue as a devotee of God. It's an expression of your non-dual illumination. Enough said. Again, to Jonathan, I would say, not essential. Try it out for yourself, and if you feel the need for dualistic worship and devotion and love, don't be ashamed. All the great non-dualists have happily embraced uh, this dualistic worship. The key is, imagine non uh, Imagine duality, real non-duality. Om um, Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Sri Ram Krishna rupa,